0: KPFB in Berkeley, KFCF in Fresno, or online at www.kpfa.org. Just got the thumbs up from the pledge room, which means we did make our $450 challenge. Thanks to all of you who called. Please stay tuned for cover to cover coming up next.
1: Poe Bronson's new book, Nurture Shock, delivers the latest scientific research on parenting. It is startling. In the process... Nurture Shock overturns a whole library of conventional beliefs, many of which have tormented children, promoted racial bias, and provided false ideas about the nature of self-esteem. Poe Bronson will speak at a KPFA benefit on Tuesday evening, October 6th, 7.30, at the Hillside Club, 2286 Cedar Street in Berkeley. There is wheelchair access. $10 advance tickets at brownpapertickets.com. Or phone 800-838-3006. Or get tickets at our independent bookstores. Full info is on the KPFA website.
2: And you are listening to 94.1 KPFA in Berkeley, 89.3 KPFP in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, and online at kpsa.org. The time is a minute past 3 p.m. Stay tuned next for Cover to Cover.
3: Good afternoon, and welcome to Cover to Cover Open Book. I'm your host, Dina Serrano. Today's guests are authors Elaine Ellenson and Stan Yogi, who wrote a fascinating book, Whenever, Wherever There's a Fight... How runaway slaves, suffragists, immigrants, strikers, and poets shaped civil liberties in California. And they're here in the studio today, ready to read you excerpt of these compelling and inspiring stories of civil liberty struggles in California that was just published yesterday by Heyday Day Press, rather Heyday Day Books. Through inspired storytelling, they take you from the struggles around whether California should be a free state or a slave territory to the harrowing CIA flights by the San Jose-based company Jepson-Data plan of suspected 9-11 terrorists to secret torture prisons abroad. It reminds me of of things that I've always known, but it, concep- it it contextualizes them in a new way and tells me so much that I didn't know. Hay Day Books has generously offered listeners limited copies of this page-turning and informative book as a thank you for your $100 donation to KPFA. And I think that after you hear these gripping historic accounts read by the authors themselves... You'll want your own copy and copies to share with your family, friends, and all the students you know. You can contact us by calling 510-848-5732 or 1-800- Four three I'll be giving you these numbers again later in the show, and you can also go to www.kpfa.org and make a secure donation, and then you will own a copy of this wonderful book. Welcome Elaine
0: Ellenson and Stan Yogi. Thanks so much, Nina. It's great to be here.
1: It's a pleasure. Thank you.
3: Well, the pleasure is ours. Elaine, can we begin right away with you reading from wherever there's a fight how runaway slaves, suffragists, immigrants, strikers, and poets shaped civil liberties in California? I'd be happy to,
0: Nina. Thank you. When young Charlotte Brown refused a San Francisco streetcar conductor's demand to disembark because, quote, colored persons were not allowed to ride, She faced a social climate nearly as hostile as that faced by Rosa Parks in Montgomery, Alabama, in 1954. But Brown's challenge came nearly a century earlier, on April 17, 1863. The Civil War was raging, and news of the Emancipation Proclamation had not yet reached most slaves. In California... The Constitutional Convention of 1849, though outlawing slavery, had excluded African Americans and all others who were not white male citizens from the right to vote. A constitutional prohibition on, quote, Negro immigration was deleted only when delegates argued that it might threaten the approval of California's bid for statehood. San Francisco had the state's largest black population, but African Americans attended segregated schools and were prohibited from using the city's public library. As the sun was setting on an April evening in 1863, Brown left her residence for a doctor's appointment on Howard Street. When an omnibus railroad car stopped on Filbert, she entered from the rear platform and took a seat midway down. When the conductor walked by to collect tickets, Brown recalled, quote, I handed him my ticket, and he refused to take it. He told me, Colored persons are not allowed to ride, and said I would have to get out. Brown told the conductor she had a great ways to go, and it was later than it ought to be, but he took hold of her arm and put her off the car. Brown sued the company for $200. Omnibus justified its conductor's action by arguing that racial segregation was necessary to protect white women and children who might be, quote, fearful or repulsed by the prospect of riding side by side with African Americans. The judge sided with Brown, but the victory was diminished by the Paltry Award. He ordered her reimbursed, five cents, the streetcar fare. Although Brown was successful in court, the victory did not translate immediately into success on the streets, Within days of the judgment, another conductor forced Brown and her father from a streetcar. Brown brought another suit, and in October 1864, Judge C. C. Pratt ruled that San Francisco streetcar segregation was illegal. He stated, It has been already quite too long tolerated by the dominant race to see with indifference the Negro or mulatto treated as a brute, insulted, Wronged, enslaved, made to wear a yoke, to tremble before white men, to serve him as a tool, to hold property and life at his will, to surrender him his intellect and conscience, and to seal his lips and belie his thought through dread of the white men's power.
3: Thank you, Elaine. You've just heard Elaine Ellinson co-author, reading from the new book, Wherever There's a Fight how runaway slaves, suffragists, immigrants, strikers, and poets shaped civil liberties in California. Well, Stan, can you read us uh, another excerpt?
1: I'd be delighted to. Lee Yick arrived in California from China in 1861 and opened the Yick Wo Laundry. He operated the business for 22 years in the same wooden building on 3rd Street, just south of Folsom, in a sunny area of San Francisco. He secured certification from the Board of Fire Wardens that his laundry was fire safe and certification from the city health officer that it was properly drained. In November 1883, a Superior Court judge upheld an ordinance requiring approval from the Board of Supervisors for the continued operation of laundries in wooden buildings. On its face, the law was reasonable because it was grounded in the public safety goal of preventing fires. In practice, however, Enforcement of the law was discriminatory. Li Yik and 200 other Chinese immigrant laundry owners petitioned the board for permission to continue operating their businesses in the wooden buildings that many had occupied for more than 20 years. The board denied all of their requests. Yet the board granted, with one exception, the petitions of all 80 non-Chinese laundry owners. On August 22, 1885, freshly washed clothes hung on the roof of Li Yik's laundry a sheriff entered and arrested the middle-aged owner for operating in unauthorized wooden laundry. Two days later, the Chinese Laundrymen's Association hired attorneys to represent Li Yik before the California Supreme Court. Li Yik's attorneys stressed that the ordinance did not define any standards for approving continued operation in wooden laundries and was therefore open for discriminatory enforcement in violation of the 14th Amendment. The city's attorney denied any racial animus in enforcement of the law. In his brief to the High Court, he contended that all Chinese laundries were cheaply constructed fire traps, despite the fact that Lee Yik's laundry, as well as other Chinese laundries, had passed fire inspections. On December 29, 1885, the State Supreme Court upheld the San Francisco Wooden Laundry Ordinance. The next month, Lee Yik's attorneys appealed to the United States Supreme Court. On May 10, 1886, the High Court issued a unanimous decision that the city was unconstitutionally enforcing the ordinance. The justices ruled that the law was a barrier to the pursuit of a fundamental right, working in a chosen trade or profession, by requiring governmental approval, which could be denied arbitrarily or prejudicially. It was clear, U.S. Supreme Court Justice Stanley Matthews stated, that the ordinance was enforced so oppressively against a specific group so as to, quote, amount to a practical denial by the state of that equal protection of the laws, which is secured by the broad and benign provisions of the 14th Amendment. Upon hearing news of the decision, Chinatown residents celebrated with fireworks. The white press, however, was not so pleased. The San Francisco Evening Bulletin editorialized, quote, The Delphic Oracle at Washington intimates we can do nothing to bridge the chasm which separates the Chinese from the modern races of men. The short-term local result of the decision was that the Board of Supervisors issued a new comprehensive laundry ordinance requiring all laundries to pass inspections by the City's Health Officer and Board of Fire Wardens. The decision had significant long-term consequences because it was the first time that the Supreme Court explicitly stated that the due process and equal protection clauses of the 14th Amendment applied to non-citizens.
3: Thank you, Stan. You just heard Stan Yogi, co-author of Wherever There's a Fight, How Runaway Slaves, Suffragists, Immigrants, Strikers, and Poets Shaped Civil Liberties in California. Well, this is a pretty exciting book. It's the, secrets, the secret history of California. And like KPFA, it tells you these untold stories. And this book can be yours by giving a $100 donation to KPFA, we're giving it to you as a thank you gift, and you're giving us a thank you gift by sending your hundred dollars. The phone number to call, and there are people sitting in the phone room waiting for your call right now, is 510 848 5732. That's 848 5732 in area code 510. But if you're outside the area code, you can call 1-800-439-5732. 439 I'll give you those numbers again. 510-848-5732. 510-848-5732. Or 1-800- 439 5732 439 5732 Please go to your phone and make that call. If you've got a cell phone in the car, why don't you pull over and call 510-848-5732, 848-5732 in 510 or 1-800-439-5732. Or if you're by the computer, just click www.kpfa.org, www.kpfa.org, and you can donate securely. I don't see... Oh, thank you, caller. Thank you so much. Won't you join that caller? You're making both authors so happy. I wish you could see them. Their faces are just lighting up. Their book just... uh, was just published yesterday. This is their very first public reading. They're very excited. We're very excited. And uh, if you would call 510-848-5732. That's 510-848-5732. The book can be yours or 1-800-439-5732. That's 1-800-439-5732. Love to see the phone light up a little more because we have eager volunteer phone answerers here who are just waiting to talk to you. And the authors too you don't know how happy this is making them their f- smiles are just filling the room they're going to be reading to us more of these exciting stories so please call oh there went the phone thank you thank you listener so how how did this book come about elaine
0: well, Nina, first of all, I, I'm so happy that um, KPFA listeners are calling to pledge support to Can the Can I station. tell them
3: the number again? Yes. 510-848-5732, 510-848-5732, or 1-800-439-5732. So
0: how did you say it came about? Well, you know, a lot of the stories in this book are the kinds of stories that you would hear on KPFA if there had been a KPFA starting in 1849. It came about because uh, Malcolm Margolin, who is the publisher of Heyday Books, was very concerned after 9 one about the violation of civil liberties uh, by the Patriot Act, by the roundup of Muslim and Arab men in this country, by surveillance of our emails and phone cards. Uh, uh, you know, all the kinds of violations that were going on. And he approached Stan Yogi, uh, who had done another book with hey Day Books, about what were some of the other times in history. That this occurred, and how did people fight against it?
3: And so, six
0: years later, we have
3: this fabulous book. Wherever there's a fight, how runaway slaves, suffragettes, immigrants, strikers, and poets shaped civil liberties in California, and it can be yours as a thank you gift to you for donating a hundred dollars to KPFA and making all these stories come out. Five ten. 848-5732, 510-848-5732, or 1-800-439-5732. Oh, I see the board beginning to light up. This is marvelous. Uh As a thank you to you, why don't you read us a little more, Elaine, so listeners can...
0: I'd I'd be happy to, Nina. And um, this is about the censorship of the Grapes of Wrath. And it means a lot to us because the title of the book, Wherever There's a Fight, comes from Steinbeck's Grapes of Wrath. When Kern County librarian Gretchen Knieff returned home from her vacation in August 1939, the familiar landscape was attracting national attention. The rich agricultural San Joaquin Valley where Knieff lived was the setting of John Steinbeck's best-selling novel, The Grapes of Wrath. The spring is beautiful in California, valleys in which the fruit blossoms are fragrant pink and white waters in a shallow sea, and on the level vegetable lands are the mile-long rows of pale green lettuce and the spindly little cauliflowers, the gray-green, unearthly artichoke plants. Though the book had just been published in April, it was already in its seventh printing. At the Kern County Library, 600 readers had reserved it. But Steinbeck had also described another facet of California's Central Valley. His story of the hardworking, downtrodden Jodes who lost their Oklahoma land and headed west, hoping to survive by picking fruit on abundant farms, exposed the sordid underbelly of California agriculture. He wrote of the harvest gypsies who swarm on the highways, nomadic, poverty-stricken, driven by hunger and the threat of hunger from crop to crop, from harvest to harvest. This powerful aspect of the Grapes of Wrath resulted in a surprise for Librarian Knieff. On her desk was an August 21 resolution from the Kern County Board of Supervisors ordering the book removed from the library shelves because the Grapes of Wrath has offended our citizens by falsely implying that many of our fine people are shallow, ignorant, profane, and blasphemous types living in a vicious, filthy manner. They were the people that the Kern County Board of Supervisors sought to protect, the crew bosses, the labor contractors, and most of all, the large growers who exploited migrant workers for profit. Wofford B. Kemp, the president of Associated Farmers of Kern County, called the Grapes of Wrath propaganda of the filest sort. But Gretchen Knieff, the librarian, fought back. Noting that this was the first instance of censorship in the library's history, Knieff said, "'Banning books is so utterly hopeless and futile. Ideas don't die because a book is forbidden reading. If Steinbeck has written truth, that truth will survive.'" The ban lasted for a year until January 1941. But Steinbeck's legacy and that of the Jodes have long outlived the short-sighted ban on his novel.
3: You just heard Elaine Ellenson co-author of Whenever There's a Fight, How Runaway Slaves, Suffragists, Immigrants, Strikers, and Poets Shaped Civil Liberties in California. The book was just published yesterday and we're offering it to listeners today as a thank you gift for a $100 donation to KPFA. The number here to call is 510-848-5732. That's 510-848-5732. Or, out of the area code, 1-800-439-5732, one 439 5732 Oh, I see the board lit up. Thank you, Lister. Stan, do you think you might offer us another little excerpt?
1: I'd be happy to. Many of the protesters who occupied the San Francisco Federal Building on April 5, 1977, could not walk. Others were blind or deaf. Few were prepared to spend the night, let alone the following weeks. But more than 100 people called the fourth floor of the imposing stone building on U.N. Plaza home for almost a month as they took over the Regional Department of Health, Education, and Welfare Office to demand enforcement of a law barring federally funded programs from discriminating against people with disabilities. The legislation, Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act of 1973, was a paper tiger in need of regulations to ensure enforcement. After years of stalling from the Nixon and Ford administrations, disability rights advocates were optimistic that Jimmy Carter would quickly issue strong regulations. Hopes dimmed, however, when activists learned that Joseph Califano, Carter's HEW secretary, planned to weaken regulations. The setback spurred disability rights advocates to action. They issued an April 4th deadline for Califano to approve meaningful regulations. The deadline passed, and the following day, demonstrators occupied the HEW office in Washington, D.C., and eight regional offices. Protests were short-lived in every city except San Francisco. Organizers here built political alliances to foster prolonged occupation, winning support from a broad array of organizations ranging from the Central Labor Council to the American Legion. The demonstration outside the San Francisco Federal Building concluded with Judy Human of Berkeley's Center for Independent Living, rallying protesters to tell the regional HEW administrator that, quote, the federal government cannot steal our rights. Hundreds followed her into HEW's offices. At first, HEW officials offered demonstrators cookies and punch. But after realizing the activists would not be mollified, they tried to force an end to the protest by forbidding food, outside calls, and re-entry to anyone who left the building. Protesters insisted on staying, many of them risking their health. Some needed ventilators, catheters, and specialized care. Others required attendants to assist with basic life activities. Faced with a sure public relations disaster of ejecting wheelchair users, blind people, and developmentally disabled individuals from the building, police made no arrests. The protesters' political groundwork paid off. When HEW officials announced plans to cut off food, the Black Panthers delivered stew. Others, including a lesbian-run cafe, blue-robed seminarians, McDonald's, and Safeway, donated or prepared food. The California State Department of Health sent mattresses. Representative Philip Burton had phones installed, and Mayor George Moscone sent portable showers. These gestures led the HEW regional director to complain, We're not running a hotel here. Ten days into the protest, Burton, along with Representative George Miller, held an ad hoc congressional hearing in the federal building to hear testimony on discrimination against people with disabilities. Secretary Califano sent a low-level aide who floated proposed regulations allowing for, quote, separate but equal schools and exemptions from wheelchair ramps and other physical plant modifications. After his testimony, the HEW official fled to an office, followed by an angry Burton who, kicking the door, demanded that the bureaucrat listen to the testimony of activists. Recognizing that the sitting could not go on indefinitely, Human and nearly 30 other Bay Area advocates left for Washington, D.C., where along with other disability rights activists, they met with one of Carter's top domestic advisors. The political pressure paid off. On April 28th, Colifano agreed to issue strong 504 regulations. And on April 30th, activists marched out of the San Francisco Federal Building singing, We Have Overcome.
3: Thank you. Thank you, Stan Yogi, co-author of Wherever There's a Fight, How Runaway Slaves, Suffragettes, Immigrants, Strikers and Poets Shaped Civil Liberties in California. That was inspiring. Thank the you. whole book is inspiring. And uh, she was so inspired that Amelia Gonzalez is here to talk to us
2: indeed Nina i'm really grateful that Elaine Ellison and San yogi were able to come and share this history the first ever account of the struggle to develop and protect rights in this uh, huge state uh, california and this is something that is uh, so valuable so incredibly uh, valuable for you to have our listeners and I'm really grateful that you were able to come down and be able to offer this to us thanks to heyday Bo- who are offering us a great deal for us to be able to offer it to you as a thank you gift. And really, I don't think of another place that, um, I can't think of another place that would have um, these folks on and really explore and celebrate the runaway slaves, the suffragists, the immigrants, strikers, and poets uh, that uh, we celebrate here at KPFA. This could be yours and also the satisfaction of knowing that you support KPFA that you support the arts here at Cover to Cover, but you could call right now 1-800-439-5732 or 848-5732 locally or go online at kpfa.org and you could pick up this book, Wherever There's a Fight, How Runaway Slaves, Suffragists, Immigrants, Strikers, and Poets Shaped Civil Liberties in California for a $100 pledge. If you go to the phone now, please, we only have ooh three minutes left. If you can... Uh, please consider supporting a mechanism where people could come and talk about their art, talk about the history that's not going to be told anywhere else. None of the major uh, news outlets are going to give. This type of history, it's due. That's what KPFA is here to do. That's what Pacifica's mission is, and we're hoping that you support that financially right now. 1-800-439-5732,
3: 848-5732. Yes, let me give that number again. 510-848-5732, or one 800 439 5732. Let's see that board light up. Let's make these authors leave on a cloud of happiness. They've brought us the good news. The good news is that we have civil liberties in California and we have an honorable and long tradition. They spent six years researching this book. So it's full of amazing and inspiring stories that will keep you out there. Protecting your own civil liberties and your family's civil liberties and your workmates' civil liberties and your students' civil liberties. We have a long road to go, but we have a proud history. So give us a call for your copy of Whenever There's a Fight. Wherever there's a fight, how runaway slaves, suffragists, immigrants, strikers, and poets shaped civil liberties in California. That's 510-848. Five seven three two. Oh, a light went on. Thank you. And one eight hundred four three nine five seven three two. You know, KPFA
2: is a place where we have uh, lots of archives. The history of KPFA, as Elaine Ellison um, mentioned earlier that back in the day in the eighteen in the eighteen hundreds there wasn't a KPFA that could chronicle this history in in audio form. So that's that's the beauty that we bring you uh today. We work with people that work in print. We work with uh Elaine Ellison and Stan Yeo and all the writers that you have seen come through the doors here at KPFA that have come to you through the air. We are here asking you to support that, to support that voice, that way of disseminating information, that way of learning about a book, learning about someone in history, learning about maybe someone in your area. Maybe you don't know the history of of, uh, a particular area in California this is it you know a lot of times we're, we're driven eastward thinking that that was the birth of our our nation well you know what there was a lot of uh, history taking place already lots of folks living in this land long before Plymouth Rock and we're hoping that you understand that that you appreciate the history that you appreciate the work that went into this book and the work that goes into bringing you these programs uh, every week I know that Nina has a monthly show here on cover to cover also works on